Welcome to Snape Chat, the voice of the Snapedom, the podcast where we discuss all things Snape, always. Join us as we dive into the world of the bravest man we ever knew in art, fanfic, meta, and more. This is Snape-centric with episode 14. Today I'll be continuing my conversation with Zygadinus that we began in episode 12. This time we talk about Snape's coding, JKR and cultural appropriation, death of the author, and much more. Enjoy the show. of questions from you today, but I think uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk about, um, we talked a little bit about Snape as being an outsider in how he's written and the character choices that Rowling made for him. Yes. I think an unconscious choice, or like something rooted in her unconscious biases, an unconscious choice she made was actually to, I hesitate to say transcode him. It's mm-hmm. not explicitly transcoding, but it comes from the same place as her very turfy biases against trans people, her her deep fear of probably gender dysphoria on a personal level, because she's talked about that mm-hmm. as being something that she struggled with very early. I don't know if there's mm-hmm. any truth to that. I, <laughs> you know, yeah, lived experiences are their lived experiences, and she's very... She's very fond of retconning things. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Everybody makes up their own mind on that one, <laughs> I guess. But she has this tendency in the Harry Potter books to, to reveal those underlying facets of her personality. And I think some of the choices she made with the way that she described Snape and the things that she, the way she coded him, um, mm-hmm. She coded like a lot of stereotypically Jewish features, but those are just, you know, because of how Western literature has always created, well, not always, but like the majority of the Western canon, particularly in Britain, has coded villains as having characters that are stereotypically Jewish. Mm -hmm. So she uses those kinds of characters, and I don't think it's explicitly like an anti-Semitic statement. But she's just pulling on the tropes that are usually used for villains, because what she wanted to do in Philosopher's Stone, and I'd argue all the way up until uh, probably Prisoner of Azkaban, is she wanted to code Snape as the the big, mean, nasty teacher, because she was writing Mm -hmm. what was essentially a boys school uh, novel. And there's a very, if you look at the, I hesitate to call it canon because it's not, but if you look at the body Mm -hmm. of work that constitutes the boys school dramas, they have like a set narrative style and there are like tropey characters that pop up again and again and again and so I think originally Snape was intended as one of these so she she coded uh, a lot of characters that are associated with villainy and those are also you know they're features that draw on stereotypes of Jewish (laughs) men uh, predominantly so that's a thing that she did and the other thing that she did was she used a lot of feminine traits and so I think she unconsciously coded Snape as Uh, in some ways trans Mm -hmm. she's doing this from definitely not a point of exonerating or uplifting the trans community because we are invited to mock snape in this Mm -hmm. way right so i mean it's it's made explicit in neville's bogart Mm -hmm. i mean she literally puts him in a dress and we are all expected to laugh at that and to take pride and joy in neville and count like countering his fear by unsexing and resexing Severus Snape. Mm-hmm. She, she makes of 
of trans people a, a mockery explicitly in that scene. But there are other aspects of Snape's coding. I mean, he, he is a potions master. Potions and poisons are predominantly the domain of female witches in British literature. I mean, we can go right back to Shakespeare and we have the three witches, bubble, bubble, um, toil and trouble, right? Right. So cauldrons, stereotypically associated with female witches. Snape is often described as hissing. The only other characters who hiss or say things sibilantly are female characters. He snickers. He doesn't, he, he is emotional. He is one of the only characters who's described as crying or having like severe emotional reactions. The other characters mm-hmm. are female. So I think in a lot of ways, she she is inviting us to think of him as having these feminine traits and then saying that these are bad things because he's coded as a bad character. Right. And then it gets complicated towards the end of the series when I think she was really grappling with the fact that we like Snape. He's great. He's awesome. (laughs) And we're having a lot of fun with this character. And we're having a lot of fun with this character. And she doesn't know how to how to deal with that. Uh So I think she starts thinking about like, who is Severus Snape? And then she comes up with, okay, well, he's a spy. And then it comes, the story develops from there. I don't think she necessarily had it, his entire arc figured out from the beginning. Mm -hmm. People will cite his language of flowers speech at the beginning as, as evidence that, oh, she knew exactly what he was going to do. Yeah. I think she probably had that plan for him. But I Mm -hmm. think it was intended as kind of like this red herring bait and switch. I don't think she had spent a lot of time thinking about his character development and the rationale for why why he would have held a candle for Lily right up till the end. I don't think she'd thought that through. And we don't find a lot of canonical evidence for that friendship having actually been a supportive and like mutually beneficial friendship. Mm -hmm. So... I don't know. I think she yeah. did a lot of character development uh, after the fact and it, it shows, it shows. So in addition to the ways that she has explicitly written Severus Snape as an outsider, she's also done this thing with, with the audience in that she has invited us to explicitly consider him an outsider because she's given us all of her unconscious biases and mm-hmm. invited us to participate in those. So yeah, he's a complicated and interesting character. And I like that. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's it's just interesting. I always struggle with, with how to refer to it. Is this transcoding or queer coding or, or film or? Mm. Yeah, so I... I think the we have to break that discussion up and look at look at it from a scientific perspective, I think. Okay. So uh-huh. gender gender is a social construct. Mm-hmm. Gender is how we perceive people and how they perceive themselves as fitting within a a spectrum or a dichotomy of expressions. Mm-hmm. So uh, as an indigenous person, of course, I, I accept that gender is a spectrum. And as a scientist, I accept that sex, biological sex is a spectrum too. So mm-hmm. sex is sex is the biological presentation of your genitals and your urogenital system and your capacity to reproduce and the direction in which those gametes are being formed. That is absolutely a spectrum. There are plenty of people who are, you know, female sex men and male sex women. Mm-hmm. that's just and there's intersex people and the biology of it is it is a spectrum 
there's a great nature article on this that I can provide as a link later if people would actually like to like to read up on the fact that you know sex is not a dichotomy there's not just male and female there are mm-hmm. it, it's a spectrum so oh, yeah. I'll shoot you that link later and you can include it in the the extra resources okay. um so that's sex. Gender, like I said, is a social construct. Gender is how you are presenting and the societal role that you are embodying. So in my communities, we have like six different genders. Uh, many indigenous communities have four or six or three or whatever. Like we have a multitude of different genders historically. And now as people are reclaiming their spaces, the two-spirit movement is is explicitly embodying this. When you do hear about two-spirit people, it's just, it's a catch-all to talk about us, but most of us are not. We don't define ourselves as being both male and female. We define ourselves within within our cultural norms and two-spirit is just a catch-all for it. But so mm-hmm. in, in my culture, for instance, we have six different genders, hmm. wow. right? And so I'm, I'm one so of them. That's, that's neat. <laughs> yeah. And so when we think about gender, it is a social construct. And so when I think about whether we use the term queer coding or trans coding, or simply say that Snape was given feminine characteristics, mm-hmm. uh, it's not down to personal preference. From my perspective, I... I don't use queer coding because queer for me, in my understanding of the space that this occupies, this word, is Mm -hmm. it is best used in terms of thinking about um, sexuality. So sexuality Mm. is what you're doing with your genitals. (laughs) I mean, to be very explicit about it, it's the Mm -hmm. kinds of the kinds of romantic and sexual interactions you're having. Now, those can be very decoupled from gender. We can have people who are biologically embodying a particular sex, expressing themselves within another gender, and having another sexuality. This is, this is, I think those are the three ways that we can, we can talk about this Mm -hmm. in in a categorical fashion. And then, of course, understanding that gender is fluid, and sexuality is fluid. Right. So for me, I would prefer to use the phrase that Snape has been unconsciously transcoded because I don't see any evidence for him having any sexuality in the books. Okay. Yeah. So I don't think he's necessarily queer coded. Can you write queer coded Snape? Can you write queer Snape? Uh Absolutely. Go for it. Um, (laughs) For me as a reader of other people's work, I would be super happy if people would do the necessary character development to, to get him through his trauma or at least talk about his trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's like a, a key part of his character, and so for me, works that don't address that are, mm-hmm. eh, you know, I mean, you do you, but for me, I, I don't enjoy reading things that aren't paying uh, a lot of attention to who he is canonically as a character. But yeah, so I use the phrase transcoded because I think that that is essentially that encompasses the majority of the unconscious choices that JKR made in, in writing Severus mm-hmm. Snape. Yeah. It was really, it was really down to his gender presentation. Mm-hmm. And somebody who is like a scholar of this is going to come in and be like, no, you're wrong. <laughs> so that's all cool. I, I think we're, <laughs> we're in an interesting cultural space where we can have these conversations now. Oh, sure. And I'd uh, love to speak know. to a scholar that, yeah, but you have to wonder if if JKR uh, is this totally 
unconscious that she did this or was this part of what she did to make him more of a villain yeah i don't know she hates women it's pretty obvious when well, if you look at her true. female characters that she <laughs> she really does not like women all of her female characters are described as being shrill and she's got like hags you know there's the there's the ugly hag in the corner versus right. the venerable wizard <laughs> Her her female characters uh, invariably tragic things happen to them. Poor Tonks. Um, Tonks has another cool character who was like originally written as I think probably a non-binary character. I mean the the metamorph magi thing. That's it's yeah. really cool, right? I mean this is this is a great opportunity for representation. And I was so worried that she was going to then go and retcon it. But what she did was actually worse because she feminized Tonks and made her into mm-hmm. a mother figure. Because in JKR's world building, mother figures are the epitome, oh, yes. right? I mean this is where it's all going. She's JKR's got some mama trauma. <laughs> I mean that's just that's just mm-hmm. fact at this point. But generally her female characters don't come off well. Even I guess there's Molly mm-hmm. Weasley but Molly is like mean like she's yeah. done mean things with Molly Molly was like really cruel to Hermione oh, yes. book four <laughs> and she was a, a written as a big fan of Lockhart <laughs> in book two so, so yeah yeah so do Snape's female traits are they are they intended to explicitly reinforce our biases no I think JKR just doesn't like women generally mm. I, I uh-huh. think she has uh some unexamined prejudices and misogyny. And I do think that this is probably all unconscious because she comes out in support of feminist ideals. I mean, she's clearly very comfortable in her own skin now, but I think she's just, she takes these stereotypes about women. She definitely takes stereotypes about trans people and is actually creating Mm -hmm. them now. And she takes these things and she uses them without thinking them through. I think that's at the core of what has gone wrong with Harry Potter is that she's just, she's not the literary genius that we Mm -hmm. all wanted her to be. Is she a good writer? I'm of the opinion that anyone who uses that many (laughs) adverbs um, has some work to go to claim that title. Mm -hmm. Certainly she's, you know, she's good at little pithy asides and making fun of middle-class Britons. Mm -hmm. It's, it's enjoyable reading. It's, the kind of reading that I would classify as brain candy. I don't think it's any great literature. And I think that the way the structure eventually unraveled towards the end of the books is it highlights that she did a lot of this without thinking through the implications. And so then we get into the other thing that we were going to chat about today, which is I made an assertion earlier uh, in the interview that the whole motif about fascism and Nazism is Mm -hmm. problematic. Now, I'm going to start off this bit by saying that I absolutely understand why people want to use Harry Potter as a cultural metaphor for the rise of populism, the increasing xenophobia, the increasing levels of fascism in populist movements, why they want to reach out to Harry Potter as as a cultural motif or a cultural metaphor to describe some of these things. I see that I see the draw there. I am not in any way arguing that that various political movements across the planet um, that employ populism. I'm not arguing that those things are something we can dismiss. I think we absolutely need to be putting a weather eye on what is happening 
globally in terms of geopolitical systems. I don't think it's useful or appropriate to use Harry Potter as a lens for that. I think <laughs> we can find better analogies yeah. in literature. And the reason that I don't like Harry Potter as an analogy for Nazism in particular is because JKR made some characterization choices and some world building choices that at their core refute this. She is working with in a fantasy and it's a pocket reality. So a pocket reality is like a class of fantasies and essentially what a pocket reality is is it's like it's like Narnia, right? I mean you can you can go through to someplace else. And that's what we literally see happening in Harry Potter. You are going into a castle that nobody else can see. It looks like a moldering pile of rubble. You are going through the platform at nine and three quarters. You're going into the ministry through, I, I think it's a, right. a telephone box, right? I mean, you're going into mm -hmm. pocket realities. And that's what her world building is at its core is its mm -hmm. pocket reality. It's lots of other fantasy literatures do this. So that's where we start. She's explicitly rooted it in the real world. And then she says, yeah, but none of these real world things had an impact because witches and wizards don't have racism. They have anti-muggle sentiments. Okay, so this is where we get into where we could potentially construe a Nazism metaphor. Okay, so in, in this hypothetical alignment, we're saying, okay, well, the muggles are the people that the Nazis persecuted and the death eaters are the Nazis. Mm -hmm. and that's, that's, I think that's a pretty fair summary of the right. argument that people are making. It falls apart because Nazis were persecuting people who were just mm -hmm. like them. There is no difference between people who have different colored skin, um, different sexual orientations or different religions. There is no difference. We are all the same. So that falls apart in Harry Potter because there are differences between oh, muggles yeah. and magic. People who are magical are essentially mm -hmm. a different species. We don't have a good reason ever in canon for why magical people would in any way fear or resent muggles or muggle-borns. What we're given is that they believe that the muggle-borns are somehow stealing magic. But we don't have a way to understand where magic comes from. That's not in the world building. What JKR says, uh, I think on Pottermore, because this is also not in the books, is that, and I, I refuse to believe that Pottermore mm -hmm. is canon, but on Pottermore, she says that, you know, magic is in some way genetic because it crops up in muggle families occasionally. And someplace back, way back in a muggle family, you would have had a witch and a wizard. Okay. So what we have here is that she says that magic is in some way mm -hmm. genetic or heritable. So her argument then that the Death Eaters or general wizarding population resents Muggleborns because they might mm -hmm. be stealing magic, that yeah. falls apart. Now, maybe it's intended to fall apart, but it falls apart. And she doesn't give us any sound rationale in terms of demography or in terms of level of power. We don't know that there's anybody at all in the ministry in a position of power who is a Muggleborn. Why would the purebloods resent that? The purebloods have right. all the power. As near as we can tell, they are well represented in systems of governance. They are certainly uh, well represented in terms of economics. We don't have we don't have the setup that we would need in order to draw a parallel with Nazi Germany. I mean, Nazism rose in Germany. Fascism rose because people were resenting the 
economic implications of the reparations for World War I. Germany was basically hit with the bill for the Austro-Hungarian Empire going to war, right? Right. And so there was there was this period of economic austerity and hardship for a great many Germans. And just like we see the rise of populism in the U.S. centered around areas where there is economic hardship amongst people who are used to having privilege or at least used to being privileged in some way. And so then we see the rise of hostility and uh, outgroup aggression because they're not just aggressing on racially different people in you know, places like right. the U.S. They're aggressing on anybody that mm-hmm. is not part of their group. So we see that kind of thing when we have socioeconomic indicators and we don't have that in the wizarding world there's no indication Mm -hmm. at all that pure bloods are in any way socioeconomically disadvantaged hard times Mary Gaunt is Mm -hmm. definitely in poverty but then we also have Mm -hmm. the Malfoys right that's and there's no indication that the Malfoys are anything other than Mm -hmm. flush with cash yeah so she hasn't set it up in terms of like a class warfare thing she hasn't set it up in terms of a racial Mm -hmm. thing all she's really set up is that wizarding people are different Mm -hmm. physically different um and genetically different probably than than muggles and she set up this world where even even the people on the side of the light aren't aggressing upon the death eaters because the death eaters are harming muggles because the side of the light is also harming muggles I mean, they're they're confunding charms and all of that. I mean, that's explicitly Mm -hmm. harming muggles. Muggles are seen as like, you know, these these cute little idiots that just have to be um, confunded and obliviated all the time. They don't don't ever realize that there are that there are wizards wandering about in their midst. Um, We don't have any sense at all that the wizarding world even fears the muggles. I mean, they should because muggles have nuclear reactors and nuclear warheads and have destroyed the planet, but we don't have any canonical evidence that they consider muggles right. a threat at all. When we talk about like the witch burnings, we have, um, I forget her name. Mm-hmm. One of one of the uh, witches in Harry's History of Magic textbook says that she like, um, it, it says that she enjoyed being burned yeah. because it tickled. So we have this, <laughs> There's no setup mm-hmm. for for creating this group versus group aggression. It's bad world building. And the, the parallels with Nazism fall apart right as soon as you consider that we are actually talking about two different species of mm-hmm. humans, essentially, muggle and magic, whereas fascism generally, and Nazism as a specific case of fascism, and fascism as a case of populism, the problem with those horrific things that other humans do to other humans is that there is no difference between our groups of humans that are being shitty to Mm -hmm. other groups of humans. Yeah. So that's my thought. Yeah. Could, could Harry Potter function as a good metaphor? Yes, but not the way that it's written because she chose to write it as a fantasy and she gave one group of people powers that another group of people had no access to. Mm-hmm. If she had made uh, if she had made their magic dependent upon wands, like it was the wand that was magic and not the mm-hmm. wizard. Mm-hmm. Um, well, first of all, there's no reason for then Harry to ever be a wizard. You're a wizard, Harry. No, you're not. Here's a wand, Harry. You can be a wizard. It's a different story. Like it's a very different story. Right. She needs that genetic legacy in order to center Harry 
this uh, little orphan who um, everything is terrible in his world and he lives under a cupboard and he's so abused. <laughs> Uh, she needs she needs him to have a genetic legacy that makes him different in order for the entire series to work. If she had wanted it to be a, an explicit statement about fascism and populism, she needed to have centered magic someplace other than genetically or um, inheritability. It had to be something that was reasonably attainable by mm-hmm. the other group of people, the muggles. And then you yeah. can have that sort of that sort of magic versus muggle uh, dichotomy and the aggression. Mm-hmm. Or else she needed to have made muggles like a genuine threat to the magical world. Yeah, for sure. It felt like towards the end she was trying to make that happen. Yeah. Um, and at that um, point she had already built in so much world building because she loves world building. She doesn't do mm-hmm. a comprehensive or thoughtful job of it, but she likes having control of mm-hmm. the world that she's built. And she right. has lots and lots and lots of details. And she's put them in and made choices about the world building that. She then tries to backtrack on and she doesn't do it effectively because she's already made choices. I, I could do the, I've given you the doily and overview of why I think this fell apart from an authorial perspective and from a writing perspective. But we can also talk about it like within world. So within universe, again, the Nazism thing falls apart because in mm, somebody has to go and find this for me because I don't remember, but I think it was in book one it was either in book one or book three when Hagrid says to Harry that Voldemort of course would have wanted to recruit your mom and dad Voldemort Mm -hmm. knew Lily was a muggle-born everybody knew Lily was a Mm muggle-born I mean if they didn't know it before they certainly knew it when Severus Snape shouted it at her on the at the lake right Mm -hmm. right um why would Voldemort have wanted to recruit Lily if the Death Eaters were anti-muggle-born if they right. were um if they were espousing nazi views on on race mm-hmm. yeah that does make it a little more difficult mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. Uh, interesting so there's these choices that she makes with world building that she doesn't think through so i have mm-hmm. to default back onto the doily and thing it's just like you know she's not as smart as we thought she was or that we wanted her to be and now mm-hmm. we see this coming out in in her politics and her online presentation and oh god why won't she stop yeah I'm just really uh, philosophically of the opinion now that like the author is dead. Mm-hmm. Let's just take these things and we can own them now. Yes, absolutely. That's kind of where I've come out to be as well. Mm-hmm. So I play around as a, as a fan writer in this universe because I mean, fundamentally I, I see it as flawed in a lot of ways and it amuses me to fix it. Mm. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, my absolute favorite writers, I would never, I would never wander into their universe and try to, try to sandbox, you know, that just wouldn't happen because I'm like, it exists as this whole Mm -hmm. thing. And I'm just very happy for the author to expand it or not as they want to, because it's in their brain. I would like it in my brain, but I have no need to go and take those characters and do anything with them or resolve anything with them or write other stories about them. I'm just happy with how they exist. JKR's work is so fundamentally flawed, but there's potential there. And so I'm like, I could fix this. It's the home renovation philosophy of fan writing. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm not writing because I'm a fan. I'm writing because yes. it annoys me that it exists the way it does and I need to fix it. <laughs> well, you do it so well. <laughs> I appreciate that. I mean, I just... <laughs> 
So are there other points that we wanted to hit today? That's that's all I was really wondering about. I think we've probably said enough about the author in the first place. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Kind of we definitely have. Like the author is dead. <laughs> it's it's hard to decouple Harry Potter from her because she insists upon being in this universe and she insists upon ownership of this space. Mm -hmm. uh, even a couple of years ago in an interview, she was very hostile to the idea that it could exist as a collective property now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, for all her faults, Anne Rice, um, rest her soul, mm -hmm. with all the DMCA takedowns and all the rest of it. <laughs> And Rice's battle with fandom and stopped. Really? And she just, oh yeah. Yeah. She hasn't Stopped done people. anything for like maybe 15 years, 14 years. Oh wow. Yeah. She she was very uh, aggressive towards fandom in the beginning because she was looking at it from the perspective of like, this is mine. You can't mm -hmm. have my my Lestat. You can't have my Louis. Um <laughs> the thing is, is everybody just went underground. Mm -hmm. Um but she she stopped being so aggressive and she stopped with the legal battles. I think towards the end, uh, in more recent interviews, she's actually said that, you know, she she accepts that it exists and that fandoms collective Lestat and Louis and whatever they're doing with her vampire world is not, it's not hers in mm -hmm. the sense that she has her own conception of these characters and she is insistent that that will remain canonical but she accepts that the rest of it exists. And mm -hmm. now she has passed on and she really can't aggress on anything and the canon is now closed. Mm -hmm. JKR isn't creating new canon. She's not creating new stories with these characters. Mm -hmm. She is consulting on Warner Brothers stuff and adding snippets of data and retconning via Pottermore and her various mm -hmm. essays. And she's also really centering herself in all of this and her own perceptions and ego. And that is something that, again, as annoyed as I have been in the past with Anne Rice as a human being, Anne didn't come out and tell us everything about Lestat and Louis and all of the rest of the vampires. She right. just wrote another book and she's like, okay, well, you want to, you, I'm going to fuck with your canon. You think I'm thinking that? I'm not thinking that. Here's another <laughs> book. Let's put in a bunch of religion. Mm -hmm. And okay, well, so fine. If she decided midway through the Vampire Chronicles that she was going to really embed it in Christian theology. Okay, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a choice that she made as an author. And she did the work to do that. And this is where JKR doesn't do the work. She just, she just takes her platform and insists upon things. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I do you have any feelings about Fantastic Beasts franchise? Mm, I have not seen any of them. I haven't even seen most of the Harry Potter movies. Mm -hmm. uh, I I ignore all of that. It's not canonical. It's mm -hmm. it's a bunch of writers and directors doing fanfic and being paid for it and getting JKR's blessing. Mm -hmm. That's that's where yeah. I situated it in my head. Mm -hmm. uh, I do. I could have potentially engaged in it if she had not started it out with those horrible history of magic essays on Pottermore. Oh, right. Now, for, you know, for the younglings who weren't there, there for that, before <laughs> Fantastic Beasts, before that franchise kicked off, she produced a bunch of uh, four 
essays. I don't think they were more than 6,000 words. They were supposedly like chapters or sections from history of magic in North America or something. I don't know. They enforce a settler colonial narrative and a genocidal narrative and an anti-Indigenous narrative. In the very first one, she blatantly appropriates from Diné or Navajo cultures. She mocks Indigenous elders. She explicitly states through her appropriation, what she's doing is, is explicitly stating that our cultures and our spiritual traditions are game to be taken and that we are somehow relegated to history and, you know, our, oh. our deep uh, things that we live are not, not religions or spirituality in the sense of Christianity. If she was mocking Jesus Christ, if he was a wizard in her canon, I'd be like, fine. Okay. You're at least, you know, you're, you're doing satire across the board, but we don't see that Moses was a wizard when he parted the sea. We don't get any of that. True. We, what we do get is her appropriating our traditions and saying that things that we believe are embedded within her wizarding world. Mm -hmm. She doesn't even mock the, the modern uh, religion of Wicca. She made a choice to say that there are no Wiccans and that Wiccan magic is not in Harry Potter because it's a religion that people practice. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm here as an indigenous person practicing my spirituality. I mean, I participate in ceremony. I smudge. I have mm -hmm. a codified system of spiritual beliefs. And she said that my system of spiritual beliefs is game to be included in her wizarding world. And I can't speak for Navajo people, but I, I do know from uh, my Diné friends that the traditions that she, the, the narratives that she explicitly exploits in that work, those are things that people absolutely believe in. Mm -hmm. I won't talk any more about that context because it's not appropriate to talk about that context. And okay. it wasn't appropriate for her to do that. Um, right. there's it, what she did was she not only just like plunged into the depths of cultural appropriation, but she appropriated something that there was a lot of taboo around. Oh, wow. Like a lot of taboo. Mm -hmm. So, so, oh. and then, and then of course, then of course, then she established Ilvermorny as essentially a residential school. Oh no. Where all of the indigenous, all of the indigenous wizards could come and learn how to use oh, wands because they didn't have God. wands before the Europeans came. And so they, they had all their native magic. And so um, that's again, the, the magical Indian, that's a big trope in, in settler colonial literature. We're always seen as having some sort of a, a grand nature connection and being like, you know, magically connected to our landscape. Uh, I'm connected to my landscape because I consider my landscape kin and the, the mm -hmm. organisms and other beings that are inhabiting that landscape are things that I have a relationship with in the sense of obligations and, mm -hmm. and a duty of care. Right. Ugh. Anyways. And so like, okay, but getting back to Ilvermorny, this is so frustrating for me as an indigenous person, because you know what, you know what kind of residential schools we had here in North America, they were not elite private institutes no. where the upper class boys who were going to move into governmental position were they formed their, their relationships that they were going to carry with them for the rest of their lives. They weren't institutes of politicking and networking for the younger class. They were institutes of genocide. Yes. Everybody has, I hope everybody has now seen 
what has come out about residential schools in Canada in terms of the unmarked graves. I just want to make the point that mm-hmm. survivors gave oral testimony in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Survivors gave testimony that mm-hmm. there were deaths, that there were graves. And honestly, it should not have taken six years and ground penetrating radar for Settler Canada to pay attention to what survivors have been saying. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't have taken that long. It did. No. Um, but now it's there's some media coverage. And I just want to make the point that the reason that we have records in Canada is because we didn't have a separation of religion and state the way the U.S. does. And so mm-hmm. our federal government gave money to religious orders to maintain schools. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the onus then was upon these schools to keep records. And so copies of records wound up in the federal um, libraries in the archives. Right. So we have some records, not all of them have been released. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say probably the majority have not yet been fully released, mm-hmm. but there are some records. And so we've been able to find more information. In the US, there really has not been a system of record keeping related to the, the technical schools and the residential schools that various religious orders um, ran throughout the U.S. So you guys don't have the data. Um, there's now a, a movement to engage ground penetrating radar on the sites of many of these industrial schools. But I'm, I'm mm-hmm. certain that the same things that were happening in the U.S. happened, or the same things that happened in Canada happened in the U.S. It's, yes the reality of of what has been done across North America. Mm -hmm. So positioning residential schools in North America without any understanding of what that means to our communities was Mm -hmm. such a hostile act. And she, you know, she has lots of empathy for kids in caged beds in Eastern Europe, but she has no empathy for children who were sexually abused, raped, killed. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can't really go on there. I, it's, sure. Yeah. It's... And that's not even talking about the intergenerational harm because mm-hmm. survivors have come out of this as, as people who are, are deeply traumatized. And, mm-hmm. and anyways. So, oh, I'm sorry. Anyways, I have real problems with uh, uh-huh. how the Fantastic Beasts franchise was originally presented to us. It was presented to us as, here's some new stories from J.K. Rowling, and I open them up, and the first thing I'm hit with is a big graphic of, you know, uh, a Narragansett or Massachusetts or uh, some other uh, East Coast Indigenous person dressed in a loincloth and, like, doing magical things with some sort of a, a bald eagle patronus. That's the <laughs> first thing I see. And that was the best oh. part of it from my perspective was the art was like, okay, settlers gonna settle. Jeez. Oh, so no, I don't follow Fantastic Beasts. I don't consider it canon. And I will obviously, as I have now evidenced, go off on a giant screen about how I knew JKR was a bad person well before everybody else. And I'm not the mm-hmm. only person who is like, got up in arms about this. Have a look at uh, Native Appropriations blogger Adrian Keene, who definitely called this out in the media and said, you know, this is a problem. Look at what's happening here. Mm-hmm. And some uh, media here in Canada paid attention to that. Uh, she got a little spot on CBC Radio, and it was on CBC Online for a little while. CBC mm-hmm. is our um, 
NPR or PBS, right. it gets money. It's a crown corporation. It gets money from the federal government. Mm-hmm. But it's it's uh, roughly equivalent to ABC in Australia or BBC in, in the UK. So Adrian King got a little bit of press on this, but JKR, who is notorious for tweeting back to fans, had nothing to say about any of it. <sighs> so, you know, in the... in in Indigenous communities, online and offline, uh, a lot of people have been very hurt by mm-hmm. what she did there. Sure. And we got told, shut the fuck up and sit down. It's a kid's book. You're making a big deal out of nothing. And we're like, um, no, it's not nothing. And so we kind of sat back and we're like, okay, well, she's a shitty person. And eventually she'll do something shitty to, to aggravate white people. And then, <laughs> then everybody will be like, platform uh-huh. her we don't have we don't have enough um actual representation in terms of sheer numbers to de-platform a phenomenon like like jk rowling mm-hmm. but it's you know i'm in some ways i'm very happy that she's doing all of her turfy stuff because it's kind of like i get to say i told you so mm-hmm. um yeah as somebody as somebody uh who exists within the spectrum of sexual and gender representations uh I'm horrified by her for all a whole bunch of different reasons, but mm-hmm. I wasn't surprised. Yeah. I, I'm disappointed and and frustrated that she just won't shut up, mm-hmm. but I'm not surprised that she is like this because she she tipped her hand to that years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're willing to dehumanize an entire group of people and mm-hmm. uh, that's really I uh, I don't know if I ever read the books or or the scripts or whatever. Honestly, I don't really remember what happens in them. Yeah, I mean, I don't think she touches on really any of that in the actual um, Fantastic Beasts movies. I don't, uh-huh. I don't think there's any Native representation at all. There's, there's barely mm-hmm. any Black representation. Although I guess the uh, they've improved on that a little bit. I don't know. There's, mm-hmm. I, I don't follow them. Yeah, I'm not interested because I'm not interested because Severus Snape isn't there. Well. That's you know absolutely true. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if there's no Snape, what's the point? <laughs> exactly. I mean, I'm just there for that. But I also really do not want her to do a, a anything with the Marauders. Like, do mm-hmm. not, do not Star Wars this. God, yeah. please don't. Um, well, it sounds like it was maybe a bad that's idea. what's happening. A, <laughs> God, I hope not. It was a bad idea when George Lucas did it, mm-hmm. and it's a bad idea now. And yeah. I, I don't want a canonical representation for for what happened mm-hmm. to Severus Snape in his teenage and young adult years. I don't want to know that. I already know that it's in my head and it's good. But we're happy mm-hmm. there. The mental furniture is is there and we're good. Mm-hmm. And I think we can have uh, multiple multiple histories for him that all come to come to interesting places because they are considering who he is as a character and who he is in the context of his lived experiences, his socioeconomic background, his intelligence, and his trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh, you're so good at this. You should, you should be doing the show. <laughs> oh, no, because I would run out of things to say. Oh. <laughs> and I would run out of coffee. Oh, <laughs> gosh. I, I, I had heard about the cultural appropriation, but I guess I wasn't really as aware as maybe I should have been. That's probably a problem across uh, 
we, mm -hmm. you know, we make up such a small segment of the population. I doubt if it's actually legitimately more than 2% in the US. Uh -huh. uh, the latest census shows 2.9, but that is impossible if we, if we just consider population increase by birth. It's actually impossible. There have not been that many babies born to make up an extra 0.9 percentiles. What's happening in the uh -huh. US is a rise of pretendianism and race shifting oh. for people who are who are feeling very um and I don't think it's necessarily all like I don't think it's all pretendianism in the sense of wanting to appropriate our identities for personal gain although that absolutely happens mm -hmm. where a lot of this uh, race shifting and pretendianism comes from is from people who are realizing that being white is requiring them to embrace a lot of the shitty things that white people have done to people of other races. Right. They don't feel comfortable with that. So they feel a lot more comfortable if they can find an Indian princess somewhere back 13 generations in their family's history. Uh -huh. I think probably the average is like seven or eight. And so um, there's massive expansion of uh, people who say that they are Cherokee, for instance, uh -huh. and uh, people people self-identifying as Indigenous, and that gets captured in the census. So I don't mm -hmm. think that the numbers are accurate, but mm -hmm. whether it's 2.1 or 2.2 or 2.9% or 1.9%, I mean, it's still a minuscule percentage of the U.S. population. Mm -hmm. And most nations are within areas that are demographically generally poorly represented in mm -hmm. u.s media i mean right. it's places like north dakota and south dakota i mean how mm -hmm. often do you hear anything about north dakota unless john oliver goes off on it right or or there's a tornado uh other than that i mean there there definitely are things happening there um mm -hmm. and there are things that are happening to to indigenous peoples. Our water protectors and land defenders are constantly in conflict with energy companies and mm -hmm. their enforcers and in conflict with uh, US police forces. And this makes headlines never. I mean, right mm -hmm. now in, in Minnesota, the US government is breaking the Red Lake Treaty and allowing the line three pipeline to, to be in production through um, right. really critical, really critical wetland habitat. And on the same day that Joe Biden announced that we were going to call Columbus Day Indigenous Peoples Day, they then went out onto the White House lawn and arrested like 300 line three protesters, water protectors. Mm -hmm. Like, Literally oh, three hours before he's saying we're gonna we're gonna honor the treaties and we're gonna we're gonna move forward mm -hmm. with indigenous communities and then they go out and arrest a bunch of people oh, who are literally who are literally trying to protest mm -hmm. ongoing colonialism right. in their lands. Mm -hmm. So the thing is is right. that we don't have the representation in terms of absolute population numbers mm -hmm. um, to demand that people pay attention. Black mm -hmm. Lives Matter um, gets coverage because there are Black people in positions of power and influence, both socioeconomically and politically. And 
it's a huge segment of the U.S. population. Absolutely, we should be paying attention to Black Lives Matter. We absolutely need to pay attention to that and we need to resolve things. Mm-hmm. But it is not the only group of minoritized mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. where there's issues. And so then, yeah, and one thing that's like actually really um, tragic and feel free to like edit this out of the interview or keep it. I don't care. But one thing that's really tragic in the U.S. and in Canada to some extent is that minoritized and historically underrepresented groups are pitted against one another because there is only so much social capital to go around. There's Mm -hmm. only so much time in a news broadcast. There's only so much space in a newspaper. There Mm -hmm. is only so much attention to go around. And so we're pitted against one another looking for space, Mm -hmm. looking for space to make our points and to represent ourselves and our concerns. We do not yet effectively amplify one another. I mean, yeah, lateral violence is, is a real thing and it's tragic because what it's doing is it's causing us to play hunger games down here in spaces of comparatively little privilege and little power right but yeah Um, uh, yeah uh, it's it's well I talk about the right and how they mm -hmm. they turn everything around on you yeah and they're the victims kind of like Jake Harrod is oh yes uh she has this big victimhood mentality I mean she's she's a freaking is she still a billionaire I don't know she could easily be a billionaire I yeah, think she I gives a lot surprised. of it away to charity. Mm-hmm. I think she gives a lot of weight, a lot of it away to charity. But she's she's at one point she was the wealthiest woman in the UK. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, you're a victim because why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because some people are mean to you on Twitter. <laughs> oh, oh dear, I'm gonna cry. So some I'm people right yeah. now. Some people Papers. took a picture of themselves on her front lawn. Oh my God. Isn't that horrible? Right. And they're, oh, they're doxing her because it's got her address in the background. You can freaking like Google that on like mm-hmm. anywheres. Yeah. I mean, when people, when people were mad about her doing the, the hedge trimming, that was, they, they have plenty of photos of her mm-hmm. physical home with her address right there. Mm-hmm. It's not... It's not hard to find that she's not being doxxed. If you're going to be a public figure, you have to accept that you're going to be a public figure. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, stop tweeting. Yeah. There's a solution <laughs> here. You don't want people to protest outside your house. Don't say shitty stuff on yep. Twitter. Stop being a turf or at least shut mm-hmm. up about it. Yeah. It's <sighs> she's going to run for office, I bet. <laughs> God. I actually don't think, I don't think she has the energy for that. Oh, you're probably right. She has plenty of, yeah, she has plenty of platform Mm -hmm. now, but. She can always pay somebody else to do it. (laughs) Yeah, heck. I do think it's interesting to consider death of the author in the sense of what does that mean in fan communities? Mm -hmm. So if we think about creators in fandom, Mm -hmm. most of us are. No, I, I hesitate to categorize this. Some of us exist within a space where we're comfortable with people playing with our own cultural properties. So I'm like one of those people who I have a very clear CC by NC 4.0 mm-hmm. statement uh-huh. in my in my work 
and saying that, you know, like I'm happy for people to take my characters and do fun things with them. Like if you want my, if you want my original mm-hmm. characters, go for it. And a few people yeah. have done this. Uh, Groot is amazing. I love her mm-hmm. little fix. Um, she's also added some of her own characters in there. And I'm like, I want to take your characters because <laughs> I like them. She's got, she's got some police officers that I'm going to steal uh-huh. back. <laughs> and by steal, I mean, I'm going to like populate them mm-hmm. in at some point. Because I just like them. They're, they're adorable and hilarious. But like, there's this wonderful uh, creative space where we are considering the works that we're doing part of like this collective property. Mm-hmm. And so we like attribution because that's kind mm-hmm. and it honors the work that we've done in creating stuff. But I think that there, for a lot of people, we're, we're really happy to just be creating something that is uh, collectively owned. Mm-hmm. So then I asked myself the question, what is death of the author mm-hmm. in this context? I have, I have a real problem being down in the comment section. My comment section is brilliant. If you haven't seen, I don't even care if you read (laughs) ink stains, but like go and look at the comment section on that fic. It's freaking amazing. (laughs) It's mind blowing. Um, There are so many smart people and they're all having really interesting conversations and I Mm. love it so much. And I get a little, sometimes people will come in and they will offer me a whole bunch of speculation about where they think I might be going with something and I'm just sitting there like sipping wine and being like I love this this is amazing I'm not going to respond to them because I'm a terrible person but like that is that is amazing and I love it so much it's like my favorite thing I'm like "Mm, tasty speculation and yeah so I kind of I kind of try to uh espouse death of the Mm -hmm. author in that I'm gonna unless I've explicitly written it someplace I'm going to just leave people alone to their interpretations and I'm not going to challenge their interpretations. I do that with varying degrees of success, but as a fan creator and as a creator generally, my perception of this process is that my role in the co-creation of fiction ends when I press post. Stuff that I say down in the comments Mm -hmm. in no way informs how people should be reading that Mm -hmm. because whatever you're reading, whatever happens in your brain, if I haven't written it, or I've written something that puts your brain in a certain space, you are just as much a creator of that as I am. My agency and my authority over what I've created really ends when I press post. Mm. So, I mean, that's my philosophy. Mm -hmm. I think it's really difficult to do death of the author. And I I probably flub up a few places, but Um. Mm -hmm. I'd be interested in hearing what other fan creators think about that concept and how they navigate it. I see some authors who in their comment sections, I'm not actively reading Mm -hmm. thick right now. And I haven't been for probably, oh God, probably a decade now. Cause I'm always saying like, I don't read thick when I write. (laughs) And I'm always, I was trying to bully myself to get another chapter done. Um, My life is complicated. There's a lot of stuff going on. And so writing, writing takes a backseat because I cannot justify it in a tenant packet. Um, This is really not going to fly. (laughs) But yeah, so, but I do, I do sometimes snoop other people's comment sections because I'm always looking to see like, okay, what's going on out here, down here? Mm -hmm. Um, Because my own is so cool. I want (laughs) to see if that's happening in other places. Mm -hmm. And I do see some other authors who they will go and they will say, they, they will give you additional information about the character and what they're thinking mm-hmm. and what they're doing in the context of whatever they've written. Mm-hmm. So like somebody will say, 
oh, Snape is so angry. And then the author will come in and say something like, yes, he's so mad about this. And just reinforcing that perception. And that's, that's a really simplistic example. I've seen some like very complicated things where people actually go in and explain like a whole bunch of their headcanon down in the mm-hmm. comment section. And from my perspective, I mean, I would never do that because I just have this philosophy of where my role has mm-hmm. to end. But it's interesting to see that other people do do this. So then that makes me wonder to what extent does fan literature, and I'm going to use that term very deliberately, literature, because I think that we are doing that. To what extent does fan literature have to also include the the conversations about fan literature? Hmm. So that's that's good. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we are clearly giving J.K. Rowling that space. People are paying attention to Pottermore. People are paying attention to what she tweets, and we are going back into her canon and interpreting it in the light of what she tweets. I mean, we've just done that today in this right. segment here where we've talked about like her turfism and what does that mean for the characterization choices that she made for, for Snape. So we're giving her the cultural space where even though we keep saying, please die as an author, mm-hmm. I mean, not literally die, but I mean, she could do that, that too. Hurt my <laughs> Whatever it happens, it's going to happen to all of us. But, you know, we're asking her to please be dead as an author, but then some of us are still giving her that space. And yet, Mm -hmm. I don't know, we're not yet having conversations about who, when, when fan authors die in terms of death of the author. Mm -hmm. I just think it's interesting. (laughs) I'm very interested in uh, the cultures Mm -hmm. that arise around, around literature as a whole. And, and what collective storytelling is and what it means to, to our online cultures. Yeah. I read a little bit about Death of the Author and a real simplistic takeaway that I got from it was that it meant that you could not tell what the political and philosophical intent of the author was originally, which I, yes. is, does that sound right? Sort of? <laughs> Um, that's, that is definitely, uh, where there's like a huge body of literature that addresses death uh-huh. of the author. And so for, yeah, in for what we would consider high literature or things that get the big L literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that that is, that's probably where most of the conversation, at least in academic circles is okay. centered. Hmm. I think that, I think that it's important to consider who authors were when they wrote things. Okay. So from my perspective, I don't think that bodies of literature exist in a vacuum. I think they have uh, an overarching cultural context. And so from my perspective, I'm not so much interested in the biographical details of who a writer was. Mm-hmm. I'm more interested in the geopolitical and social context that they were writing from. Mm-hmm. So like for me, I, I'm a big fan of Alexandre dumas Pair, and I don't really care that he was you know, probably a a misogynist. Mm -hmm. And he certainly had interesting sexual proclivities in terms of like a lot of them. Um, That to me doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know very much about him as a person. I haven't spent a great deal of time um, investigating his life, Mm -hmm. but I know a lot about his times and I know about the, the context of when he was writing, I understand what was happening in France at that time. I understand what was happening in Europe broadly and situating that within 
within history and within a social context allows me to appreciate some of the the tropes and some of the conventions that are are utilized. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing like reading Jane Austen. I mean, Jane Austen is not much fun to read until you've understood the class and social hierarchy of England Mm -hmm. during the, the Regency. I mean, if you don't understand the dynamics of class, you don't understand Jane Austen. You don't get the sarcasm. You don't get the jokes, mm-hmm. and you don't you don't understand um, why the whole Elizabeth and Mister Darcy thing is so like deeply sad. <laughs> um, That's <laughs> so. I, I don't. I do think that um, yeah, the author, the author, their own intent doesn't matter, mm-hmm. but it matters the context that they were living in. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. For me. For me. That makes sense. Yeah. So this has been great. I got one more thing to say because now I've mentioned Mr. Darcy. Oh, yes. (laughs) Okay, so there was this huge thing in SSHG prior to Snape being outed as a a grubby little oik from (laughs) um, the Midlands, someplace Mm -hmm. in the Midlands, Manchester, probably. Um, Cokeworth is a stand-in for like one of the towns around in the greater Manchester area. Prior to this, there was this huge trend in SSHG for Lord Snape to have a manor (laughs) and all Mm -hmm. of that. And there's there's still like a lot of interest in in creating a a sort of Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy Mm -hmm. dynamic between the two characters. Um, It was a lot more prevalent prior to prior to knowing Snape's Mm -hmm. background. Um, I feel like it's kind of uh, it got displaced because the same thing that happened in in the real world, the same thing that happened around the time that Snape's background got revealed, is that we also got Twilight, and then very shortly we got Stephanie Meyer, oh, no. and so you know, Mr. Darcy Snape got displaced by uh, Dungeon Master Snape, <laughs> and yeah, that that was like a a big mm-hmm. shift in sort of the the community of fan writers that was writing in SSHG, and this is not everybody. But there's like there's now like a, a solid contingent that mm-hmm. y- you can parse them out into different categories of of character uh-huh. interaction. A thing that annoys me about like the the Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth um, trajectory is that if you read Austin, it's so deeply structured in like classism that it's just painful because you know what Mr. Darcy was like fucking awful to yeah. her. He basically said, you know, your 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 father is a disgrace. Mm-hmm. Your mother is an incompetent idiot and you're not high class enough. You actually uh, loving you and being intrigued by you is actually making me a um poorer person and it's diminishing me as a man. Yes. And then he comes to some realization that like he can deal with her low class and like lack of social graces mm-hmm. and all of this. He can deal yeah. with that because, you know, she I mean, the story is essentially her ascending to a higher class. Mm-hmm. She gets a mansion <laughs> at the end. Um, yes. That's that's so gross. <laughs> I'm sorry. That entire trajectory is so gross. Mm-hmm. Yes, they snipe at each other and it's cute. And if you stop there, it's a cute story. But if you actually like read it with some understanding of what's happening in terms of class dynamism and like the very rigid boundaries and class structure, it's a deeply sad and very disturbing yes. story. Like there's, I, I like it a lot more when you add zombies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't, I don't enjoy that 
in in the canon of SSHG because it's just it wears me out a little bit because it's not it's not ever treated with the gravity that that actual romantic trajectory demands <laughs> to my way of thinking there's plenty of like really good writing like objectively good writing in terms of being able to string words together in interesting ways lots of that yeah but the overall structures of those narratives they're romanticizing something that yes was originally presented as a romance but i think in a modern context has to be looked at as kind of um really highly problematic mm -hmm. Yeah. It did not age well. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, some, somebody pointed out that she didn't fall in love with him until she saw his house. So yeah. It's uh -huh. like, oh, wow. <laughs> There's that. Yeah. There's that. Yeah. Um, or, or her falling in love with him was actually just being really annoyed with mm -hmm. him, which I don't know. It doesn't seem healthy to me. No. It really seems like, okay, so then there's, we get back to the James and Lily dynamic, which is, oh my God. Yeah. Oh, that is um, problematic. Yeah. I need to, okay. So I, I say that I don't write other pairings and I don't write outside of this, but like, I'm so tempted to go and write James and Lily's marriage as like one of like definitely emotional abuse. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Like, I, I just want to explore that dynamic a little bit because it has so much potential for going in so many, like, really deeply bad places. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, a great author actually uh, did this a little bit. Orette, if you have read her, is a great starting point to jump into SSHG. And she does some fun things with James and Lily. Is that A-U-R? Yes. <laughs> yes. Her body of work is on fanfiction.net. And it, she's slowly, she's back a little bit in the sense of um, moving some of her material over to AO3. I don't, I haven't heard anything about her writing anything new, but she is at least um, moving some stuff over kind of okay. slowly. So yeah, her stuff is great. And she, she plays with the James Lily thing. So maybe I don't need to, maybe it's done sufficiently now. Yeah. No, who's, who am I kidding? I need to, I need to take it into like a deep, dark, horrible place. There's, there's so much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's, uh, well, I pretty much hate the Marauders. I just hate them. And that's uh, okay. I'm not even going to put this part on because, you know, I don't want to offend anybody, <laughs> mm -hmm. which maybe I should, I don't know. No, they just, I mean, they're just I think, so cruel. I think everybody has opinions and they are. They are. I think that they are probably, you know, I think to each other, they are wonderful friends. And they definitely espouse a very good and healthy kind of friendship to one another. The way that they exhibit a duty of care towards Ramus is, uh, it's very nice, except for using him as a, a murder mm -hmm. weapon, um, attempted murder weapon. Right. But I mean, aside from that, uh, they clearly care about one another. And it's, it's nice to see a representation of a friendship that is not utilitarian. Mm -hmm. I guess Harry and Ron are not, they don't utilize each other, but um, Harry, Ron, and Hermione, that entire dynamic is predicated upon Hermione is only allowed to be their friends so long as she's not getting them in trouble or bringing the teachers in and so long as she's helping with their homeworks, really. Uh, otherwise, she's not allowed to be yeah. their friend. So that's a very utilitarian and transactional friendship. And we don't see really any other friendships in the series, but we do see the Marauders. And so we see, I think, a healthier version of friendship there. Mm -hmm. But then they're shitty to other characters, yeah. or at least they're shitty mm -hmm. to Snape. 
So if they can bully one person, it says something about, about their value system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And okay. What's her name said that they relentlessly bullied him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it wasn't just, it wasn't just bullying. It wasn't bullying specifically around Lily. James was not bullying Severus in order to make himself look better for Lily. I'm sure he was doing that as well, but he started when they were 11. Yeah. Like it literally started on the train. And they, they were stalking him. They had a map and they had a cloak. Mm -hmm. They could, you know, God, I don't know how I would have handled that being victimized like that. Yeah. And it didn't, it didn't end at the point when James was already dating. Yeah. Lily. Supposedly changed. We have that. We have that mm -hmm. from Ramus in. Yeah. So nothing changed. They just didn't do it in the open. So it was, it was not about Lily. It was about aggressing upon mm -hmm. Snape. Why? Um, because he looked poor and probably was not like an objectively attractive mm -hmm. child at age 11. Sure. He, he didn't dress well and he didn't look nice. And he probably talked funny too. <laughs> probably. I mean, he's got mm -hmm. that Northern accent and we know that people will aggress upon other people for reasons that are that stupid. Yeah. Are they good people, the Marauders? I would say no. <laughs> I mean, we've got that from JKR too. She made them all very uh, fallible characters right before she killed them. She can't kill somebody off in canon without turning them into a bad character <sighs> in some way. Uh -huh. So we have, we have Sirius who is hung up on his own ego and his grieving for James. Mm -hmm. And can't see Harry as an individual, but has to um, personify as an extension of James. So Sirius has that flaw. And Ramus, of course, uh, is a deadbeat dad by the end of it. And so we're, uh, she goes, she goes through and she like demonizes characters before she kills them. With the exception of Snape. Yeah. And, and I guess Lily doesn't, Lily doesn't get demonized at all. So. No, St. Lily. Yeah. Up on her pedestal. Literally on yes. a pedestal. <laughs> I think some of her words kind of revealed what kind of friend she was though, from, you know, the prince's tale. Yep. Just, mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. The prince's tale is interesting because it really, it highlights the fact that this was not a reciprocal relationship. So even though Snape couldn't tell anybody on pain of, I guess, expulsion, um, couldn't tell anybody about the fact that he had just survived a, an attempted murder. Mm -hmm. He's still trying to find evidence of wrongdoing to convince, I guess, Lily, because at this point, Dumbledore wasn't paying attention to him. So there was nothing that he could get on the on the Marauders to to make his life right. safer. But I guess at this point, he was still attempting what we have from the context in The Princess Tale is that he was still attempting to convince Lily that these people were not good. Whether this was out of fear for Lily or fear for himself, we don't have any evidence there. I think you could make the argument easily either way mm -hmm. that he might've been trying to protect her in, in trying to highlight how problematic the Marauders were, or he might've been trying to protect himself and like asking for support from Lily. Either one mm -hmm. of those cases, she clearly does not give him that support. Right. If I'm sorry, like I have friends and if they tell me that something has harmed them and they're like all het up about somebody I'm going to at least listen to them yeah I'm certainly not going to tell them that it's not as bad as they perceive it even if I believe that I'm not going to tell them that because that's not supportive right so we don't we don't see her being a friend to Severus Snape mm -hmm. I mean whether we're looking at Snape's worst memory or we're looking at the preceding events mm -hmm. 
because his conversations in the in the princess Taylor's conversations with lily happened before the lake right but we, we don't see her standing up for people we don't see her mm-hmm. doing much of anything yeah. yeah we see her cautioning severus about the friends or at least the the compatriots that he has in slytherin house mm-hmm. and saying that avery mulciber are bad news essentially mm-hmm. and I'm sure, but like he also has to sleep in the same dormitory mm-hmm. as them. Like, yeah. it's not safe for him. It's really not safe for him to go and like yeah. be be the champion of the Muggleborns in Slytherin House. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly uh, what J.K.R. has set up. If she wants us to believe that Slytherin House is all evil and full of Death Eaters and that Death Eaters hate Muggleborns, <laughs> even though she doesn't write that, mm-hmm. or at least hadn't written that in the early books, but by um, book seven if she wants us to believe that then again it's not safe for severus to do that mm-hmm. yes he is magically gifted but he's also been told that like he'll be expelled for on the flimsiest of excuses mm-hmm. because the powers that be at hogwarts are more interested in preserving some purebloods mm-hmm. james and sirius uh dumbledore is more interested in preserving them than he is in preserving severus snape right i mean snape literally could have died and the consequences here are that i think james and sirius got detention maybe um nothing happened to ramus and severus got told that he would be expelled if he talked about it yeah essentially how would he how would he feel yeah how would he feel safe doing anything after that because the teachers do not have his back Mm -hmm. they are literally happy to see him die is the message that he would have taken from that now is that cowardice I'm going to go with, no, that's self-preservation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a lot of sympathy. I have a lot of sympathy for mm-hmm. him being like in this underpowered position. Yeah. You think of like Snape's first memory. If he had these friends, I guess they weren't at the lake. Yeah. But still, I mean, why didn't they go and why, why didn't his supposed friends go and attack James and Sirius on his, on his behalf? Yes. We hear again and again that the, the dynamic was always, three or more on one yeah we don't see any evidence of snape having like a little army of people who follow him around and protect him yeah. if he was of high stature or standing in his mm-hmm. house um if his genius for creating curses and hexes was actually something that he distributed to slytherin house in order to gain points or to gain allies we don't see any evidence of him having those mm-hmm. allies yeah he's he's the greasy little kid who's fast with a hex because he has to be because ain't nobody going to come and, and protect him or save him. The best he's going to get, the best he's going to get is his best friend laughing at him when he's flipped upside down and, and has his genitals yeah. exposed to an awe, a surrounding crowd of people who are on looking and laughing. I mean, yeah. that's, that's the kind of protection he's going to get. I have this fantasy that when they pantsed him, he was so well hung that they just walked away and nobody said anything. <laughs> oh Oh, well not reality (laughs) well reality talking about a fictional character that makes a lot of sense (laughs) so yes i have this fantasy that like Uh i have this fantasy that he got revenge in some like really beautiful and creative way but i don't think that he did because his i don't think that that was his motivation for joining the death eaters Uh revenge against the marauders i just i don't feel that in 
in my understanding of the character. I do think that he was, um, his experiences in school set him up as an outsider and that he was recruited to the Death Eaters. I don't think he joined because they kind of function as a cult. Right. In terms of the fact that they accumulate people of power and influence, they're a fairly small group. Mm -hmm. And I don't see him as actively seeking them out. Yeah. At least not for for revenge against the Marauders. If If it had been about revenge against the Marauders, I think we would have gotten some of that in the prince's tale. Uh, I don't think he would have relented in, in terms of, and this is this is why I say that I don't think it was revenge, is because he relented in talking to Dumbledore. He was like, save them all. Okay, well, he, he originally just wanted Dumbledore to save Lily. Right. Dumbledore pointed out that that was kind of sociopathic. And he's like, oh yeah, it is. Save them all. Save them all. <laughs> I mean, it would still accomplish what he wanted. He didn't care enough about James to desperately want yeah. his death yeah, at that point. True. He cared more about his his very dead friendship with Lily, because I think he accepted at that point that she was not going to be his friend anymore. They'd gone through Snape's worst, worst memory happens sometime in their in their fifth year. It happens after uh, Owls, so we can reasonably say probably May. <laughs> Owls seem to happen in May because there's a period where the kids go off and have adventures in the in the Harry Potter timeline. The kids go off and have adventures after exams, so exams happen before the end of term. So we can reasonably say that owls happen for the end of the term. And I, I believe that's in OTP as well. Uh, somebody else can go and check the timeline on that and figure out how many weeks it is. But it feels like probably it would have happened in May. So May of fifth year is the last that Severus has anything to do with Lily other than sitting outside her dormitory door being pathetic and trying to apologize. Mm-hmm. That's the last of their interactions. There's all a sixth and seventh year. Mm-hmm. At that point, he had to recognize that their friendship was dead and irretrievable. To my way of thinking, it's weird that he continued to carry a flame for her, but he's a rational individual in terms of how he acts later in canon. He is definitely logical. I mean, Hermione even makes the point that most wizards don't have an ounce of logic, and here's this logic puzzle, and she's so pleased with it. (laughs) We, we We have canonical evidence that he considers things is thoughtful and is logical for all that he does have like little emotional breaks mm-hmm. he is mostly very very um constrained yeah. and so i don't think he joined the death eaters from an overwhelming desire to enact vengeance upon the marauders yeah. it wouldn't accomplish much and it definitely was not his motivation in removing himself mm-hmm. from the death eaters i mean there's right if he hated if he hated the marauders enough to join the death eaters for vengeance mm-hmm. then he would have continued to hate them and he his overwhelming courtly love of lily would not have been enough for him to say save them all right i think so then i asked the question okay well so what is his motivation in actually joining the death eaters and i do think he was recruited right i think he was recruited because he was useful to them here we have all sorts of interesting opportunities to develop like mentorship friendship roles with Lucius and uh or Narcissa. I like Narcissa as like his little mentor sure. because I don't think female characters get enough uh well good that's true roles in yeah. Harry Potter and I just want her to be like the mastermind. Yeah. The mastermind or the agent of his corruption. Mm-hmm. I enjoy that very much. <laughs> not in not in a like a romantic or sexual way, but just like in this very intellectual way where he's like just they, they have some kind of an intellectual thing going on in, in my little headcanon. 
But uh, yeah, anyway. The marauders certainly pushed him away from the light, I believe. Yes, I think they made it uh, absolutely impossible that he would ever participate in society where they were. Yeah. Whether that's the light, whether that's the order, or whether that's like just getting a job at an apothecary in Diagon Alley, he was not going to do that. He was so extensively bullied and vilified. And the other, the other context here with the Marauders that we, I don't think we pay enough attention to is we, we think about this as a dynamic between Severus and the Marauders. Mm-hmm. And we don't talk about what was happening with Severus and the rest of the school body. Mm-hmm. Now, having been subject to extensive persecution and bullying in my own life, um, I was I was Snape in school. I literally like there were kids that I didn't know who would come and pick on me. Oh, I had I had people like spit shoot up food oh. on me, and I was shoved into lockers. Um, my experience, I mean, I, I didn't get pants, but had my clothing stolen after oh, gym geez. class and so I had to go home in minus 40 weather in oh, gym geez. shorts um oh. so I had that experience and the thing is is that when you have one really aggressive and like obvious group of bullies everybody else is not safe from those bullies unless they are participating mm-hmm. so we see Snape getting bullied by the marauders mm-hmm. He was almost certainly bullied by everybody else in Gryffindor, for sure. Um, probably a lot of the other houses, too, because they were like, well, I'm not going to be a target. And so they'll just trip Snape in the hallway. Hopefully where, where James will see it or where Sirius will see it in the report back to James. Mm. I think he was, when you have such a small group of people where everybody basically knows each other and the house system ensures that because it doesn't create a, a gap between years, you create this enormous opportunity for everyone else to be scared of the mm-hmm. bullies or to want to be friends with the bullies. I mean, James and Sirius were very popular. James was the, the I mean, he's a Quidditch star, right? Right. And they're both attractive. Yes. And so Sirius may have been deeply um, unpopular in Slytherin house. And so maybe Severus would have had a little bit of support that way because they just hated Sirius because he's a, a blood traitor, but maybe not. Mm-hmm. Because then we have to say that like Slytherin houses canonically, it aggregates pure bloods of a level of privilege. And here's Snape, grubby little kid from the Midlands, right? Right. I mean, he's low class. So they might just like ignore him entirely, which I, for, to my way of thinking and thinking about the class dynamics, that's probably more likely and that they um, would find him useful, but not enough to offer him protection. Right. And so... Yeah, we don't see enough of the dynamics of what else he had to deal with in Hogwarts, but I think that it was probably like wholly traumatic because if people were not trying to curry favor with marauders, they were trying to avoid becoming the next target of the of the marauders. A hilarious thing, like from my own personal experience, is that I actually had to leave one of the schools that I was enrolled in because of the bullying, because it was getting to the point of physical oh violence. Gosh. And it wasn't safe for me there. And the staff basically said, and this is again, like, I relate so much to Snape because the staff basically said, you're the problem because people want to bully you. We can't do anything for you because you're the problem. It would probably be best if you just left the school. Oh, well, that's teaching really good lessons to the bullies and to you. That's, That's what I got. Oh, my God. 
And that's what that's I crazy. got. And so what actually happened, uh, I had, I was wandering through like the grocery store mm-hmm. a couple years later. And one of my college peers at that time, certainly from the same, same age class in the same um, mm-hmm. classroom, I, I ran into her and she said, we really wish you would come back because all of our, all of our cliques, or I guess Americans pronounce mm-hmm. it cliques, um, all of our cliques have fallen apart mm. because we don't have you to bully. Oh, and she literally said Jeez. this, like, we don't have you to bully anymore. So then now everybody's fighting with everybody else. So like, we wish you would come <laughs> back because we want to be friends again. I'm like, that was my role. And so like, I feel like that was Snape's uh-huh. role too. Like whole, whole groups of friends and allies uh-huh. accreted around making this child miserable. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> It's just like, I have so much empathy yes. for him. Mm-hmm. I've been there. And I think one of the one of the interesting things that the fandom community does with Snape is they say, uh, the people who are like very anti-Snape, they're like, oh, but he was mean. Mm. It doesn't matter that he was bullied. He was mean as an adult. He just kept enacting the same violence that was done to him and he should have known better. And that this is where they, I mean, lots of anti hate him for like purely superficial levels, but the ones who like actually put some thought into it, um, they hate him because, he enacted the same trauma upon children that was enacted upon him. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's actually like really good to have representation in literature of people who are, you know, they're the bad survivors. Mm-hmm. They've survived this shit. Yeah. They don't examine their trauma. They have done enough work just getting to the point where they have right. survived it. And Snape sits really nicely in, in that space, that um, representative space. Uh, he, yeah, he's objectively mean to kids. I mean, he's not really, his teaching style is not out of the norm for like 90s teachers in England. And it definitely wasn't out of the norm for like early aughts teachers that I had in Northern Canada. I mean, most teachers who were sarcastic assholes like Snape, um, he never, he never physically harmed anybody. He didn't actually poison devil's toad he just threatened most teachers who had that kind of attitude people just laughed at them and actually kind of enjoyed them because they wouldn't they wouldn't put up with shit it was it was the teachers who were super nice and who then everybody knew that they went and like drank in the staff room or cried in one of the staff bathrooms after Uh class those are the teachers who got like the worst shit and and kids chewed them up and spit them out yeah yeah i mean if you put him up against McGonagall you know she takes more points I mean I think they have like they've taken the same amount of points or we got more he's some done the math she took 150 points off Gryffindor on the first book Dumbledore gave them all back at the end that's true I should actually go through and do the oh yes yeah, somebody yeah. did that uh I should go through and like see over there, yeah, I'm sure somebody has over the entire seven-year, traje- well, six-year trajectory of the books, um, how many points did Snape actually yeah. <laughs> take? We don't know what he took from other Gryffindors. Maybe he was just like, every opportunity of a Gryffindor mouth breathing, he was like, <laughs> one point. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, I don't know, we don't have any canonical evidence for that. What we have is how many points he took from, from the trio. And I don't see where he took points that were wholly unjustified. Mm-hmm. Uh, even when they were fighting with Malfoy in the hallway, yeah, he made fun of Hermione's teeth, or did he? I don't know. Yeah. He kind of did. Um, but he didn't take points, right? Yeah. And he didn't give her detention for 
missing class. Like he didn't make her go through class with like giant freaking beaver teeth. No, <laughs> she went off to she she went off to the infirmary and got her teeth fixed and shortened them, and she was very happy with mm-hmm. it afterwards. So. <laughs> um, probably not happy being made fun of by her teacher, but like he didn't give her detention for missing class. He could have been an yeah. asshole and done that. Teachers I had would have done that. <laughs> Even if you're bleeding, yeah, you can't leave class. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. A lot of people say that they like how sarcastic he was and he, he was a little bit with Hermione even though I like to pair him I think he was probably just so annoyed with her he, he either ignored her or was me, mean to her at the time yeah yeah I, I think I think she really pisses him off because she one she's not doing authentic learning she's regurgitating textbooks so I, I fixed that in my own fic by like she's also bored with regurgitating textbooks and oh here's finally a teacher who wants her to not do that and she's very happy with that canonically we don't we don't have any evidence well we do have a little bit of evidence because she does create the little coins with the protean charm she's she does do some independent things that are not really out of books we just we're not spending enough time with Hermione's character and it's not from uh, Hermione's character's perspective so we actually don't know what she thinks um, maybe she's totally into book learning and maybe she's not. Maybe she just has like a healthy respect for authority or maybe she just really loves knowledge. We don't have any of that characterization data in order to uh, make a strong interpretation about what she does or does not think about rote learning. Right. But she certainly is, she's regurgitating all of the answers in potions. And that is really annoying, like from a pedagogical perspective, if you have that student because, and I'm speaking as an educator now because I do that and I've been doing that for like two decades for sure. And now I feel old. Um, <laughs> oh. So I, I've been working as an educator and like, I like the students who are smart and know all the answers and come to class prepared, but I'm not teaching them. I mean, I'm literally, I'm not improving them because we have a certain amount of material to get through mm-hmm. and I'm going to write an exam based around a certain amount of mm-hmm. material. And it is going to, if I write that exam well, and I, I, pride myself on actually doing that. And I run the stats to Mm -hmm. make sure. But if I write that exam, well, it's a a bell curve, a Gaussian distribution. And so the people up on the the far right tail of that distribution, the people in the 90 or A plus percentile, I'm not teaching Mm -hmm. them. They are going to learn that material regardless of what I do, because they care about their education. They are enthusiastic. They like learning or they like knowledge, or they see the benefit of accumulating knowledge Mm -hmm. and doing well, whether they see that in terms of a benefit of like career outcomes or whatever, they are independently motivated to learn Mm -hmm. things. And they are not, they already know how to study or else they're so smart that they don't need to study. And they have such a good memory that they don't need to study. That definitely happens. And it's actually really tragic when those people, because I'm one of those people, uh, when you wind up in in uni and all of a sudden you have like, it's like drinking from a fire hose and your brain can't encompass everything until you learn study mm-hmm. techniques. <laughs> it's very sad when that happens. Oh, wow. And it's it's very uh, heart-rending uh-huh. for those people. So at some point, at some point I will do that to Hermione because she needs that to happen to her character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But as an educator, you're not teaching those people. You're also not teaching people on the very bottom of the tail, the people who are going to be the high school dropouts or the university dropouts, or that are just there because mommy and daddy said they had to go to school. They're there to party. They're going to do, I mean, they're there to, you could call it networking maybe. Okay. Yeah. 
They're there to have a good time and they don't care about what they're learning. And you can't make them care because they have already decided that they don't. Who you're teaching are the kids in the middle. The ones who either don't know how to study or are struggling with a concept or, you know, they can move up a percentile. Mm -hmm. They want to do well in the course, but for some reason they're just not. Mm -hmm. That's where you're investing your energy and effort. Sure. And so as an educator, when a Hermione comes into my class and knows all the answers and is sitting there waving their hands, (laughs) I'm like, I know, you know, I don't need you to tell everybody else. Everybody else is looking at you thinking, I don't have to come prepared to class today. So-and-so Hermione is going to know. And yeah, yeah, that's, that's defeating my role Mm -hmm. as an instructor. So I can see why Snape is like so annoyed with her because it's like, he knows she knows. Mm -hmm. She's already proved that. She proved that on the first day. She could have sat back the rest of potions and he'd been like, I I know, you know, just shut (laughs) up, shut up. So yeah, I I think that like the his general annoyance with her comes out of that space of just like he we know he cares about his pedagogy we know that he writes his own lesson Mm -hmm. plans uh they don't have a a a set potions book that they do potions out of until they hit slughorn's glass Uh they copy stuff down off the board and they work from his instructions on the board so we know that he has created an entire lesson plan for like every single lesson we know that he does like an insane amount of marking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he not only makes them brew, but he makes them go and do research on what they are brewing and why and constituent elements. They have to turn in essays. So he's looking at not just practical applications and like hands-based pedagogy and learning by doing. He's also created a some sort of a rubric or marking schema that gives points to those people who are actually just really good at going and sitting down and regurgitating stuff. So we're dealing with Maslow's hierarchy in in that way, in terms of rote memorization and being able to like regurgitate things. And probably there's also synthesis work that he's doing. So like, we know that he cares about his pedagogy. Mm-hmm. And and here's Hermione just fucking everything <laughs> up. And she's helping, she's helping one of the worst students to cheat. Mm-hmm. I mean, She's literally letting Neville copy her. He's not learning anything. So Snape is just sitting there like every lesson going like, fuck, can we just get her out of this class? Mm -hmm. Like, I think he would offer her like some sort of advanced work in potions and just be like, stop coming to the class so I can teach the rest of these fucking dunderheads. Here, just go off and like (laughs) learn to brew Wolfsbane. This is your thing. Do that. Like that is, if there wasn't a war going on, that is absolutely (laughs) what he would have done. Just Mm -hmm. out of sheer annoyance with her for being up in the 90th, percentile like way up there in the far right of that distribution and just being like too smart for what he needs to teach in order to get the grade right I mean he he needs them to meet the standards probably not to keep his job but certainly the fact that he does meet whatever the standards are that the ministry sets his potions students always pass their newts Mm -hmm. And in order to accomplish that, he needs to be able to fucking teach them. And he can't do that if Hermione's there letting people cheat and answering all the questions. Right. So yeah. <laughs> I think he, he obviously acknowledges her as being an intelligent person and is just so annoyed with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I kind of had canon, like in terms of uh, the interactions that I develop with the two of them, I had canon that he also looks at her as being like, an example of what he could have been if anybody had ever given a flying fuck over him. Slughorn doesn't talk about 
Severus as ever having any genius with potions. And yet we know that he revised the set textbook. Mm -hmm. How did Slughorn miss that? How did he miss that he had a genius Mm -hmm. in his class? I mean, clearly Lily was just like working from Severus's notes or whatever, and Lily Mm -hmm. got the praise, but nobody gave a fuck about Severus Snape. No. And so I think like in in the way I had canon their interactions is that he looks at Hermione and he's like, there's like some resentment there because she's clearly um, upper middle class. Uh, she's her parents are dentists that's pretty high yeah income. yeah um I mean they're they've got a nice flat someplace or they have their own house they have a detached they have a lawn maybe I, they're not they go on holiday to yeah, France <laughs> like just like for a couple months or mm-hmm. something I don't know she comes back looking very tan so they've been on the beach in Marseille I guess <laughs> I don't know where they've been but they go on a holiday. They're not poor. So here's Hermione. She's clearly loved by her parents or at least, you know, very well supported in terms of having the right clothes and having a bunch of books and generally feeling that she has, can take up the space to stick her hand up in the Mm -hmm. air. Nobody's ever given her shit for that. So she's gone to uh, a private school, a muggle school, a primary where she was either surrounded by other people like that, or she had such kind and well-balanced teachers who accepted that behavior from her Mm -hmm. and her parents clearly enforced that behavior or could have, I think that there's probably like her bossiness and her essential loneliness at the beginning of the Harry Potter books. I, I think that that probably hints at her having some probably some detached interactions with her family. She doesn't have any siblings, although J.K.R. was originally planning on having a sibling for her who then just disappeared. The sibling was supposed to be somebody who didn't get the Hogwarts letter and there were supposed to be like frictions or um, something. And then she just decided that that wasn't the story she wanted to tell because we're going to focus on Harry and complicating Hermione's background was just too much, which I would have liked that, but yeah, it would have been too much. But whoever Hermione is, she's privileged and nobody has, nobody has been objectively cruel to her. She probably has some attachment issues with her parents. I think so. And I write that, but it's not, she's not in a a space where her physical needs needs aren't being met. She's not in a space where people are being overtly aggressive or abusive towards her because she does have that confidence to be the bossy little know-it-all and you get that confidence because it's been positively reinforced for you at some point so I think he also kind of like at least I had Ken and him as looking at her and being like resentful of sure of her having the safety to just be smart because I don't think he would have had that I mean most of what we see in canon is that he does not have people around him who validate him and who support him and protect him. Right. So from a, the perspective of an educator and from the perspective of somebody who has been really ground down by the entire life he lived, I, I think he uh, resented her for those two reasons. One was like purely professional and the other, I, there's no canonical evidence for this, but the, I feel the other would have been like looking at her and being like just a little bit annoyed that nobody Mm -hmm. he didn't have that and that he could have been that that would be irritating (laughs) so yeah I have thinking thoughts about characters yeah and so I I think that's kind of like 
and I don't suspect that he probably ever did that self-reflection that I've just gone through. Uh, I think he just would have been annoyed with her. And he would have always said that it was because she was just a know-it-all and was interest. It was screwing up his, his teaching and wrecking his pedagogy. But like the other stuff would have been there under the surface kind of bubbling. Mm-hmm. So he had so much bubbling underneath the surface. <laughs> There's no indication that he examined any of it. <laughs> no, poor guy. He Which didn't have time. It's lovely because then we can, yeah, we, we make him examine his stuff um, in the epilogue. That whatever comes after the epilogue. Oh, gosh. <laughs> the other thing that he would have really resented is her like double length essays because he has to read those fucking things. And even if they were very well written, like when does he get to sleep? Mm-hmm. He asks for two feet of two feet on something and she will give him 12. And he's like, can't you learn to just like <laughs> just do exactly what I tell you to? I don't want to read all of this other stuff. Yeah. I know all of this other stuff, but now I have to read it because you've given me 12 feet. <laughs> I have to dock points for each extra foot or something. <laughs> you know, again, speaking as an educator myself, I do really enjoy the students who can just clearly answer the question and not give me an entire treatise that involves their pets. Oh. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I don't need a giant narrative. I just need you to answer my question because there's a rubric here and I got to do it this way. We'll do fun synthesis stuff elsewhere. I don't need it on the exam. <laughs> I don't need it on the essays. Um, <laughs> and it's not, it's not that I, it's not that I don't like that because I definitely do when I have time, I definitely do like reading through students who are just really enthusiastic and spend a lot of time coming up with way more than I asked them to. That's fun. If I have time, yeah, I got 50 million other things to do. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I have so much sympathy for Snape because, like, I guess I am Snape on some oh. level. We all are. I mean, that's that's why we are intrigued with characters is because we find in them some representation of ourselves. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's uh, when I see all the anti trends and like how much Snape hate there is out oh there, God. like it. It affects me personally because, again, I do empathize with this character and I see similarities in who he is portrayed as and who I Mm -hmm. am. And so I look at all of the hate and it's really hard not to personalize that and to think, okay, well, there's no space for me in this world. Mm -hmm. And I think if we, and this might be a good place to end this on, if we could all just remember that one, these are fictional characters and not worth getting Mm -hmm. head up about. And two, there are people who identify with these fictional characters for very complicated reasons, and that doesn't make them a bit bad people. Mm-hmm. I mean, they we have complicated reasons for liking what we like, and we don't need to be harassed on account of that. And I think if we just came to all of these dialogues with a lot more empathy and a lot more realization that mm-hmm. there are people on the other side of this who are living, thinking, breathing, loving, caring, kind people, Mm -hmm. and just really centered that and reminded ourselves of that, we'd go a lot further and this space would be a lot more fun. And at the core of it, that's why we're here, right? I mean, we're doing this as a hobby and it's Mm -hmm. kind of fun. That's, yeah, that's what it's all about. So, and I know there's a lot of Snaders out there, but I think in the larger population, that's not in our little fandom space there's more love for him out there and less hate that's just my theory yeah the people that the people that we don't see in fandom are the people who just like obliquely cruise past it and 
don't engage in fandom, but they're just out there. They're like, they, they appreciate it. They consume it. They have, if you ask them about it, they might have an opinion, but they don't think deeply about it and they don't care to participate in the fandom community or they're not even aware of the fandom right. community. So I think, yeah, there's probably a lot of people who, who like me, look at Snape's sarcasm and just laugh and like enjoy that and move on with their lives. Yeah. But for us, we curate our own experiences for the most part. I know yeah, I know sometimes there's actually personal attacks, which I've not had any experience of it, but I know someone who has. Yeah, yeah, there are definitely. Um, yeah. It comes back to my original premise that like groups of people will be shitty to other groups of people and you can't really prevent that because that is just like hardwired into <laughs> the human condition. Hardwired into, I, I think so, really. I mean, mm-hmm. we being shitty to other people comes from a space of trauma. It comes from a space of mental illness or at least poor mental health. And it comes from a space of not getting support. (laughs) And that's why people are shitty to other people is because something is wrong in their life and they are aggressing on other people because they can't aggress upon whatever is wrong in their life. And how do you fix that? That's, that's, that is kind of sad, isn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, if you're, Here's, here's a plea to everybody out there who is experiencing hate from antis or who is in a situation where you're having to deal with people who are, for whatever reason, not behaving in pro-social ways. They are doing that because they are hurting. It doesn't make what they're doing okay. Just like it doesn't make it okay that Snape is a bully as a teacher, that Obviously, he is not an ideal educator in that sense. It doesn't make it okay that these people are being assholes to you, but they're doing it from a space where they're hurting about something. It's not your job to fix it. It's not your job to be their friend. It's not your job to make them better. Um, It is your job to recognize that engaging with them is probably going to make it worse. And trying to engage with them to change their mind is not going to work because they don't actually, they're not really angry about what they're saying they're angry about. It's something else entirely that's going on in their life or in their head. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to be resolved by, by fixing what they're talking about. Yeah. If you live in a democratic company, a country, I guess what you can do is you can vote for social programs like mental health supports and, um, (laughs) universal incomes and stuff like that and then like maybe that'll fix some of the some of the (laughs) hatred that people have is just like improving their improving their physical conditions and uh giving them access to mental health supports in in some reasonable way so like that might fix it so uh, if you do live in a democratic country uh exercise your right as a citizen and your responsibility as a citizen and (laughs) be active in that way because that's how you fix the haters is you make Mm -hmm. You get rid of whatever is causing them to be such hateful people. Yes. <laughs> oh, I think. Goodness. I think on that note. Yeah. Um, we're probably. I think we've, yeah, we've talked a long time again. <laughs> yeah, we've gone through um, talking about the Western canon of literature to talking about democracy. And we've had lots of conversations about Snape and his trauma. So I think we've covered the whole gamut of what we could possibly do. I think so. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate all the time that you've spent with me and all the interesting things you have to say. Sure, sure. 
And I, I think I even managed to get through this without spoiling anything that I'm planning on doing. Oh, no, well, I didn't hear anything. So. Good. I would have been like, oh, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, on that note, I will go and... Okay. Well, take care now. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this talk. Thank you, Zigadinus, for the wonderful conversation. And here we must say goodbye. We wish we didn't have to, but it hasn't escaped our notice that life isn't fair. Many thanks to Nix for all her work on our new website at snapechatpodcast.com. It's almost complete and looks great with a new banner and avatar by Matt Fantasy. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Tumblr and Twitter, email us, or leave a voicemail. We really want to hear from you. Be sure to check out Care of Magical Shippers podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay snarky.